Well, as I mentioned when we began, um, this week was, has been a, a difficult week for us as a family in many ways. But just a reminder that while there are those who, who weep and those who sorrow, there are also those within our church family who rejoice. And we're to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. I don't see them here this morning. Uh, some of you may uh, have met Heath and Rocio Paulek. Uh, I don't know if they're here this morning or not. They're fairly new to our church family. He called me this week and just said, uh, uh, shared the news that they're expecting their first. Well, they have they have one. They have a little girl, Eleanor, I think, and then they have um, they're expecting a little boy. So we're rejoicing with them. If you haven't met Heath and Rocio yet, please make sure that you get to make their acquaintance. Uh, just a delightful young couple, and we rejoice in the Lord with them. Well, if you would, take your Bibles and turn once again this morning back to our ongoing study in the book of First Peter. There has been... Th- this really is... Uh, an, I'm, I was trying to figure out the word for it, and I don't want to overstate it, so I don't want to understate it, but this is just an epic letter. It is a tremendously nourishing book for us, spiritually nourishing, spiritually encouraging. It is a wonderful, wonderful little letter, and I am coming to appreciate it more and more, and I hope that you do as well. I know we're taking our time going through First Peter, and I, and I hope that it doesn't become sort of a, um, a drag for you, a difficulty, but I hope that you're enjoying it as much as I am. I think one of the reasons why I I am so impressed by this letter is that it is of such extreme practical value for us as believers in the midst of a world of unbelievers. And as I was thinking about that this morning or in preparation for this morning, I really don't want you to forget what is at the center of Peter's mind and what is really His heart is zeroed in on in this letter, and and that theme, that emphasis, I've reminded you of this many, many times, I believe comes to us in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Remember in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, you are a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He's speaking here to the scattered, suffering saints in Asia Minor. And he says that you have, you are a, a, a people for his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is such a monumental thought, and I don't want you to miss it, even though I've emphasized it over and over and over again. I want to do it one more time this morning. He's writing to these scattered, suffering saints there in Asia Minor, and he reminds them. Peter is all about reminding. He just, he's constantly wanting to remind his readers of truth. He's not necessarily giving them anything new, but he's continually reminding them of what they already know, and that is that they have been called out of darkness. Called out of darkness. That is a monumental phrase in this book. And it is, it is important that we understand what it is to be called out of darkness. He reminds them that they used to live in a state of being out of fellowship with God. That's, that's living in darkness. 
Living in darkness is being alienated to God or from God. Living in darkness is being in opposition to God. That's what it means to be in darkness. But he says, those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ have been called out of that alienation with God. They've been called out of alienation with God into fellowship with Him or into His marvelous light. You used to be in fellowship with darkness. Now you are in fellowship with the Almighty God. Everything that is alien to God and in opposition to God, you used to be in fellowship with that. But by a work of His grace, you are now in fellowship with Him. By the way, that's the kind of vocabulary we ought to use when we talk about our relationship to God, when we talk about our testimony. We really need to, 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 to change the vocabulary that we use, the words that we use as we talk about our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say this morning, I have been called out of darkness. I have been called out of darkness and ushered into his marvelous light. I Can you say, I have gone from being alienated to God to now being in fellowship with God. I have gone from darkness to light, from alienation to fellowship. Can you say that? Has there a def- definite, definitive time in your life where you say, I went from darkness to light. And because of that, Peter says, we have been assigned this great divinely bestowed purpose in life, and that is namely to proclaim the excellencies or the renown of Him who has called us. We, we have this joyful privilege to make known the far exceeding excellencies of the one true God in a world filled with lesser gods. That has been the primary emphasis of Peter in this letter so far. But the question comes, how is it done? How do we proclaim the excellencies of God? You ever see something so great and so magnificent that you say, you know, words just don't, there are no words. How do I describe this to you? Well, how can we describe the far exceeding excellencies of God? You need to put into words the attributes of the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator and sustainer of all things, such that other people can appreciate what he or who he is. How are you going to do that? How are you going to do that? Well, this letter lays out how that's done. And he says, primarily, now I'm kind of summarizing, I'm just outlining, I'm, I'm just noticing the high points. He says it's done, number one, through your sanctification. In chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it, your holy living. You see, when you live a holy life, when you live a life that is apart from sin, you make known that our God, who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light, is worth something. It's worth you making a break with the way you used to live. The conduct of the Gentiles. Your sanctification. But not only your sanctification. People look at that and go, wow, something must be great about his God because look at how he lives. Look at how she lives. But not only your sanctification, your submission. You live in submission in this world, right? 
You're not known as a rebel when it comes to uh, the, the world. You're not known as a rioter. You, you live in submission underneath, in, 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 underneath a, a, a worldly government. Not only submission within the government, but submission in the workplace. You might have a, an ungodly boss, and yet there's something about you that just, you stay in place. You, you, have, you live in submission within your home, within the church. Your sanctification, your submission. And then he says, I'll tell you a third way that you can make people see the incredible worth of God, and that is through your suffering. Boy, this is just so encouraging, right? Some suffering, submission. This No, but it is. Suffering as a Christian, when you willingly suffer, even though you're righteous, suffer for righteousness' sake, that says something. In other words, you, don't, you realize the fact that you being called a Christian and you pursuing Christ will likely mean that you suffer in some way. And the fact that you don't turn tail and run or that you don't hide from that or, or give up, man, that is going to say something about the worth of your God. Now, the last time that we were together, we came to chapter 4, which is where we're going to get to today if, if, if we can actually get there, where we found Peter continuing to discuss the reality of Christian suffering. He was giving these general instructions regarding the Christian's relationship to an increasingly hostile world. One man said, that he, he, he kind of uh, summarized the message of, of Peter in this letter as holy living in a hostile world. The reality is that the Christian is going to face the suffering of persecution. And the, the, the folks that you used to run with are going to think it's very strange that you're now, now living for the reputation of Christ and no longer for yourself. You used to be all about yourself. That was me. I was all about me. I was all about me, bringing some fleeting moments of fleshly pleasure to me. But then something changed. I went from pursuing the next drink and the next high and the next party to for some reason, for some weird reason, wanting to give my life in service to a God I couldn't see. And people thought that was very strange indeed. And here's the thing. Not only was that strange, but the fact was, I was still imperfect. I wasn't perfect. I was still a weak sinner. And, and what happened was, that made people go from being amazed, like, wow, what, this is strange, to being agitated, this guy, who does he think he is? Holier than thou. I know who you are. From amazed to agitated to angry. And that's what we came across in verses 3 and 4 of 1 Peter 4. Look at what he says. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and what? They malign you, they blaspheme you, they speak against you, they slander you. And, and these verses, I know kind of I joke, you know, I have a new favorite verse every other day. But honestly, truthfully, 
Really? I mean this. These have been my favorite verses since I became a Christian. There's just such a practical impact on my life. I, when, when he said, you spent enough of your lifetime in, the, in the, the way you used to live, I was like, that's me. I spent enough of my lifetime wasting it on the passing pleasures of sin. And that could only ever mean judgment for me. Now, our text today comes in verses 7 through 11 of chapter 4. What has happened is, Peter is transitioning out of talking about suffering as a way in which we proclaim the excellencies of God. Now he's going tra- to come back to that, but he's going to introduce another, a fourth way that we bring glory to God, and that is through our serving. Through our serving. We exclaim the excellencies of the Lord through our serving. As I said, he's going to come back to the issue of suffering, but he brings us to Christian service, or I'll just say it this way, Christian living. He spent the first six verses of chapter 4 telling us how not to live. And I, I appreciate that. I appreciate some black and white, concrete, don't do this, that kind of thing. But now he's going to tell us in this next section how we are to live. Not just not what to do, but what to do. And he's calling us to Christian living. He's calling us to live like we're Christians. Look at what he says in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now what we're going to begin to do today is look at this text, 1 Peter 4, 7-11, through and I want to show you how Peter provides three important aspects of Christian living in the midst of a world that is in opposition to God. Three important aspects of Christian living in the midst of a world that is hostile, not only to God, but to those to, to God followers. And those aspects are this. Incentive, there's an incentive for Christian living. Second, there, there are some instructions or an instruction for Christian living or to Christian living. And then third, he kind of closes it out with an intention, the intention of Christian living. So incentive for Christian living, instruction to Christian living, and intention of Christian living. I don't know how far we'll get on that today because I'm really, I'm going to take my time. We're just going to work slowly through this. And I know we're going to come back to at least part of this for next week. So let's begin and notice the incentive, the, the motivation, the, the foundation for Christian living. He says it right there in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand, therefore, stop. Therefore, this, we're, we're, he tells you that he's, he's developing a foundation, a reason, a motivation, an incentive. He just brought up the subject of judgment in the first six verses. The judgment that unbelievers will face. Judgment 
Unbelievers will face judgment for the way they treat you. And that brings his focus now to the end. We might say it brings his focus to eschatology. Eschatology is just a big word that means the, the study of the end things. This has been something that is on Peter's mind throughout the letter. He is constantly focused on the end. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, he's talking about the end. Chapter 2, verse 12, he talks about the end. He's, he begins his letter with eschatology, and at the end, he's going to end his letter with a study of eschatology or study of the end things in chapter 5, verse 4, and chapter 5, verse 10. Listen, I want to say something to you. Eschatology is not some heady doctrine that is to be reserved for theological debate. Neither is it some unknown mystery. The Lord God has given us the information that we need in order to form our understanding of the end of time, the end times, if you will. And that, my friend, is the ultimate incentive for Christian living. Eschatology all throughout the Scripture is a major motivating incentive for Christian living. What is Christian living? It is living according to the plan and design of God. And what he is saying here is, you are very close to facing the end of all things. What is the incentive? What what motivates Christian living? It's this. The end is real. The end is real. He just says it. He just states it. The end of all things. Now, that phrase, the end of all things, is not so much referring to termination, but it is referring to consummation. It's not termination so much as it is culmination. He is talking here about the fulfillment, fulfillment of a goal, fulfillment of a purpose, In this way, what Peter is talking about here, when he says the end of all things, he's talking about the ultimate end. The ultimate reason for which the world has been created. It gives the sense that everything has been created for and assigned a purpose in God's timetable. And what we learn here is that God is bringing all things to the final fulfillment of that divinely assigned role. The end of all things. It is all-inclusive. All things includes what? All things. We could understand that Peter is saying to these suffering Christians that the end of their suffering is at hand. And and I'm sure he is saying that. But he's not just saying that. He's not just saying that their suffering is coming to an end. But rather, more, more than that, he is saying that they are going to see God bring about the ultimate fulfillment for the purpose of their suffering. That's the end of all things. It's more than than the end of your suffering. It's, It's seeing the ultimate purpose for it. But it's even more than that. Because it is the fulfillment of all things. And for the Christian, the end of all things really revolves around one thing. And that is the blessed hope. The blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what motivates, that is the incentive for Christian living. 
One man said, Biblical prophecy provides some of the greatest encouragement and hope available to us today. Just as the Old Testament is saturated with prophecies concerning Christ's first advent, so both Testaments are filled with references to the second coming of Christ. One scholar has estimated that there are 1,845 references to Christ's second coming in the Old Testament alone, where 17 books give it prominence. But then in the 260 chapters of the New Testament, there are at least 318 references to the second advent of Christ. One out of every 30 verses, 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to the coming of Christ. Every prophecy in the Bible concerning Christ's first advent, for every prophecy in the, in the Bible concerning Christ's first advent, there are eight which look forward to his second. This is not a, some, this is not a closet doctrine. It's not something mysterious. It is something that is blazoned on the Bible. God is going to bring about the ultimate plan for which He created all things, and there is nothing and no one that can hinder that, and that is real. There is a real coming where Christ will appear in the clouds, the blessed hope of the glorious appearing. But not only does He say the end is real, He says the end is near. You see what He says? The end of all things, what? Is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Not only do we notice the reality of the coming, the reality of the the fulfillment, the the, the reality of the culmination of all things, but he also points us to the nearness of that culmination. He says it is at hand. And it means just that. It is near. Now we're talking here about the doctrine of imminence. Imminence. The New Testament teaches that what Bible students call the doctrine of imminence. That is simply that Christ could return at any moment. And this, for the Christian, fosters an eager sense of expectation. It's all through the Bible. Why don't you go with me to a couple of passages? Go with me, first of all, to Romans chapter 13. I'm just going to call these out, read them. Maybe write them down and do some thinking about them. But we're just saying, so I want to show you how throughout the New Testament, this, this idea of the nearness of the end, it, it's at hand. Romans chapter 13, verse 11. And notice also how all of these things are connected to Christian living as well. Romans chapter 13, verse 11. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Why? For for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Very similar to what Peter's talking about. Look at what Paul says now. Go from Romans. Go to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Literally, He is close. He is near. The idea of His coming. 
Same thing over in the book of Hebrews. Just turn over there for a moment. A well-known passage in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verses 23, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another And all the more as you see the day, what? The nearness of the day, the day drawing near. James says the same thing. Listen to James chapter 5. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and latter rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That's the message of the book of Revelation. Revelation 1.3 Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who keep it or who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Jesus at the end of the book of Revelation says I, the, the, the time is near. Behold, I am coming quickly. I am coming suddenly. The point is That the end is not just real, but the end is near. And this isn't the kind of chicken little kind of thing running around saying the sky is falling. We are to live in eager anticipation of the finishing of all things. It is the rapture of the church that will trigger the fulfillment of the end of all things. That is the next event on God's timetable. In other words, shortly, soon, suddenly, close by, this is near, it is imminent. Christ will appear in the clouds, which is the blessed hope of God's people in this age, and he will call all of those who know him to himself. There is absolutely nothing, listen, nothing that remains necessary for the fulfillment of the intended end of all things at any time. Now, I know there are differences in this among Christians, but I'm just telling you that the message of the Bible is you got to deal with this. I'm not the editor. I'm just the paper boy. You got to deal with this. Christ is is near at any moment. He could appear in the clouds and call us to himself. The judge is at the door. That's what imminency means. Let me tell you a little bit of something about the grammar that Peter employs here. He uses the perfect tense for the verb that's translated at hand. That means that we must recognize that we are in a constant state in which all things are ready to be brought to their final God-ordained end. We are constantly living in a state in which all things may, are ripe and ready for the end. Nothing, absolutely nothing is meaningless. Nothing, absolutely nothing is somehow not serving the greater purpose of the eternal God. All things are being worked together for good. Because all things will be brought to their final God intended purpose. All things. And that's the incentive for Christian living. (laughs) 
I, I have such fond memories of growing up and being exposed to so many wonderful hymns and so many wonderful spiritual songs, even though for most of my, those years I was an unbeliever. But those songs still have had an, an impact on my life, and I was thinking about one of them this week. The writer says, It may be at morn when the day is awaking, when sunlight through darkness and shadow is breaking, that Jesus will come in the fullness of glory to receive from the world his own. It may be at midday, it may be at twilight, it may be perhaps the blackness of midnight will burst into light in the blaze of his glory when Jesus receives his own. Oh joy, oh delight, should we go without dying? No sickness, no sadness, no dread and no crying. Caught up through the clouds with our Lord in glory when Jesus receives his own. Oh Lord Jesus, how long, how long ere we sing the glad song, Christ returneth, hallelujah, Christ returneth, amen. And that is, that is written on my heart. And oh, to live moment by moment, second by second, with the realization that He is near. We're to set ourselves not to Christianizing the world. We are to set ourselves to evangelizing the world. We're not to make people comfortable in a world that's doomed for failure. We are to prepare a remnant to be rescued from the midst of the coming judgment. And the way we do that is by living in such a way that makes others see he's worth it. Way to proclaim the excellency of our great God, to adorn the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, I'm not downing this at all. But what we need is not necessarily a class on evangelism. What we need to be able to do is to live like we're Christians. To adorn the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so that men hear the truth and through a work of the Holy Spirit are born again. And it is very difficult to emphasize preparation without an expectation. Are you living in expectation that He's coming? What kind of effect does your eschatology have on your life right now? You say you believe he's coming. If that's the case, there are certain things that will take priority in your life. You you had better get, we had better get our eschatology straightened out. And our eschatology better be the same as God's. (laughs) You're here this morning struggling with the allure of, of of the world you're you're here this morning battling with the passions of your flesh i want to tell you listen young people especially you there is a very real and very near end coming you don't have time to waste you better get right can i can i ask you right now are you ready to meet the lord jesus christ are you, are you ready to meet him? That's something you need to be thinking right now. Am I ready to meet my maker? Well, how can I be ready? 
Well, of course, Peter here is talking to, to believers, those, and he's calling them to live a holy life, which is a life that is built on the revelation of God through his word, a life that is aimed at on pleasing him. So that life must begin with believing the revelation about Jesus Christ. That's how you start to get ready. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we make it our aim, whether we're alive or dead, that we please Him. That's the Christian life. Is that your aim? That's the incentive to Christian living. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Let me go back to it again. See how far we've gotten? Five words or eight words, right? The end of all things is at hand. Now, therefore, on the basis of that, on the basis of the reality of the end and the nearness of the end, here are some instructions. And I'm only going to give you these. We're only going to look at them briefly. We're going to come back in the coming weeks and, and examine them. But therefore... Here's a life that's ready. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The doctrine of imminency, as he moves on now to some of these instructions for Christian life, for Christian living, the doctrine of imminency does not call for spiritual silliness. It doesn't call for spiritual, you know, navel-gazing. It doesn't call for spiritual slothfulness. Tom Schreiner said, The nearness of the end has led some believers to lose their heads and act irrationally. This is not what I said, uh, being like a chicken little, walking around, talking about the, 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 the world, the, the sky is falling. You don't lose your head. But what he says here is, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. There is to be a sense of clear-minded and self-controlled seriousness. This is such good counsel for all of us today. It is even good counsel to those who are in the midst of doubt and wondering, if you are one of those that, that's on the, 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 the kind of straddling the fence, as it were, this is good counsel for you. Because if you're wondering, can I ever come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? I would say this. If you came to me and said, Pastor Joe, I don't know if I'm really a believer. I don't know if I'm really a Christian. I don't know if I have been come out of darkness and into light. I would say this to you. I would say, take this very, very seriously for the sake of your prayers. For the sake of calling out on the Lord Jesus Christ. Set your mind on this thought. Because it could very well be that the, the, the very instance for you saying, I don't know. That could in fact be the, the working of the Holy Spirit. To bring life to your dead soul. And so take it seriously. 
Get on your knees and pour out your heart to the Lord. This this Christian living in the last days is summarized in terms of in three ways. Praying. Loving and serving. Don't allow anything, he says, regarding praying. Do not allow anything to hinder your vital spiritual relationship with and your vital spiritual communication to God. What could hinder that? Well, I'll tell you what hinders that, and that is a frame of mind or a perspective that is not spiritually observant, but rather spiritually reckless, spiritually silly, spiritually slothful. Oh, wow, I'll put that off to another time. Remember, remember Jesus telling about the parable of the guy who had all this stuff and he said, I got so much stuff that my barns can't contain it. So what am I going to do? I'm going to tear down them and build bigger barns. And he says, you fool, you silly, slothful fool. Tonight your soul is required of you. When you are alert to the reality of the end and the nearness of the end, I'll tell you what happens. That is, a, you become a very spiritually serious person. Maybe the events of the last few days in our lives, as, as we have had the privilege of sitting by the bedside of Grandma Betty in the days and hours and minutes leading up to her death have shown the light on this for me. But there is just too much silliness in the church today. And I might be as guilty of that as anyone else. There needs to be such a seriousness of mind and heart so that our prayers are in tune with the leading and the desires of God in His Holy Spirit. And that's what Jude says. Jude says we are to be praying in the what? Holy Spirit. Yet you got these, these, these charades going on in churches today where people are talking about they're praying in the Holy Spirit and it's nothing but a bunch of gibberish. Nothing demonic sort of gibberish. Praying in the Holy Spirit is not that. Praying in the Holy Spirit is praying in accord with and in submission to the will of God as revealed in His Word. And you've got to be serious about that, friends, if you're going to live the Christian life. For you're praying. This is real Christian living. And then he says, not only regarding your praying, but regarding your loving. The realization of the reality of the end of all things and the nearness of the end of all things leads us to a burgeoning, a growing relationship of love among believers. So instead of seeking revenge and instead of being filled with bitterness and hatred, we pray and we serve in love. One commentator said this, in the church where there is a lack of love and common purpose and where the spiritual lifeline of communication to God is broken, the forces of opposition will weaken and eventually destroy the church. And what does he say? He says, above all, verse 8, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins, showing hospitality to one another. It is love that is commanded for us as Christians living a Christian life. I love what one commentator said. 
William Hendrickson said this, love is capable of being commanded because it is not primarily an emotion, but a decision of the will which leads to action. Love is capable of being commanded because it is not primarily an emotion, but a decision of the will leading to action. Let me tell you about this love. And, and again, I'm, I'm just, I'm just uh, surveying this right now. We're going to come down for a deep dive in the coming weeks. But look at, look at the four characteristics that he gives us of this love. First of all, he says this love is to be first. I get that out of what he says, above all. <laughs> above all, that reflects a priority. It is of supreme importance in your life that you mark this as the most important thing in your life in light of the reality and the nearness of the end of all things. Think about, you, you read The Return of the King, or like me, if you just waited for the movie, think about Sam and Frodo as Mount Doom is being destroyed, and Frodo says, I'm glad that you are here with me, here at the end of all things, Sam. That's the heart of a Christian when it comes to the relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. We're here at the end of all things, and I'm glad you're with me. This love is to be first. It's of primary importance. This is not something that is a secondary issue. You spend enough time living for yourself. You spend enough time with selfish pleasures and selfish pursuits. Now it's time for others. It's time for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love is to be first. But not only is love to be first, love is to be fervent. See what he says? Keep loving one another earnestly. Not only is there to be a priority on love, but there is to be a fervency to our love. This is the word. When it says uh, earnestly, it's a word that means it, it implies stretching out. It is a love that is stretching. Love that goes the extra mile in the end days. It's that kind of, you, you, you've got to exert some effort. You've got to stay up a little bit longer. You, you get up a little bit earlier. You, 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 you sacrifice your own time. You give your efforts. It's an earnest love. It it may mean that you sacrifice other things. It's a fervent love. It's to be first, it's to be fervent. But not only that, it's to be forgiving. Because love covers a multitude of sin. This is just a general statement. It's generally true, whether it's spoken of God or, or man. Love generally covers up sin. The Proverbs say, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Tom Schreiner said, when believers lavish love on others, the sins and offenses of others are overlooked. This is real Christian living, friends. I think we need to have maybe some time in the near future where we can just talk about this characteristic of love, namely that of forgiveness. Of all the aspects of love, it seems like God mentions this one the most, the aspect of forgiveness. When you have love for one another, you don't use the inevitable thoughts. Here's the point. He's not saying not calling out. He's not 
This has nothing to do with church discipline or anything like that. But, but when you have love for another, you don't use the inevitable faults and offenses of another as an open door for bitterness and hatred. You don't open the door for an attack on them. This is the end of all things is at hand. You're going to mean to tell me that you believe, that this, just think about this, some worldling coming around and saying, you believe to tell me that Part of what it means to be a Christian is that you believe that Jesus Christ is coming soon. Yeah, and he said, and you treat each other like that. I call that baloney. Something doesn't add up here. This love is to be first. It's to be uh, fervent. It's to be forgiving. And this love is to be for everyone. He uses verse 9 when he talks here about showing hospitality. This is like an adjective that's further describing the main, main, the main verb here. He, he uses this adjective to be descriptive of this love. That's, this love of Christian living is a love that is hospitable. It is for everyone. It opens up your home. It opens up your heart. We have too many Christians walking around like this today. And I'm not... this. Doesn't sound right. I'm not necessarily saying you, I'm saying others. Because <laughs> we have experienced not this this week in particular. We've experienced people just showing up unannounced with taco soup. Seven gallons of it. <laughs> I'm not just talking about, I, I'm saying we, we need to be much less like this. And more open, open not just our home, but our heart, our hands. The end is coming. Christ is coming. This love is to be first, it's to be fervent, it's to be forgiving, and it's to be for everyone. So the instructions for Christian living, just hurrying now, regarding praying, regarding loving, and then regarding serving. And, and I'll just give you the outline here and we'll come back to it later. As each has received a gift. Oh, by the way, how can I forget this? Showing hospitality without grumbling doesn't mean just opening it up while under your breath you're like, here they come again. I can't believe they're doing this again. <laughs> that was a knowing laughter. <laughs> Yeah, I've been there, right? But now he says, as each has received a gift. What I love about this passage is it talks about the power for spiritual gifts or the power of spiritual gifts. Where's it come from? As each has received a gift. That, that gift has come from God. It's a, it's a supernatural enabling to serve Christ by serving his church. Talk about this more in the coming weeks. But then there's the prophet of P-R-O-F-I-T, of, of gifts, of serving. And what is that? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, that God is the one who has entrusted these gifts for the benefit of all. And if you're holding out on using your spiritual gift, if you're holding out on using your, the, the, the supernatural ability that God has given you to serve Christ by serving His church, listen, we're not experiencing all the fullness of God that we could be as a church because you're sitting there doing nothing. 
And then not only the power for this, for this serving and the profit of this, but the purpose. And that is what, what does Peter say? So that, in order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Not for ourselves. We don't do this so that people can be, look, whoa, look at that person. We do it. We say, because God, so God gets the glory. And isn't that the very purpose that Peter's writing this letter? First Peter chapter 2. In other words, people are going to see something about your God. See, look at the way you serve Christ by serving his church. There must be something to that. There must be a reason. There must be something worthwhile. And that's how you, you explain the immensity, the attributes of God to a lost world. In fact, that, that leads us into, and again, just quickly, the intention of Christian living. Verse 11, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Eternal glory to, to think of this, that God, through our Christian living, through our lives, would derive not just a present glory, but an eternal glory on into eternity. It will be constantly heaped upon Him. The, the spotlight will be constantly shined on Him. Not just, this is not something that's just, that's just temporal. It's not something that just lasts for, it's not a blip on the screen. It's something that goes on into eternity, the eternal glory and the eternal dominion. That is that Christ alone is the ruling king and the ruling authority and he's the one who's worth of, worthy of everything. That's the intention of Christian living. Not to draw attention to me or to you, but to say something about him. J.C. Ryle said this, a holy man will follow after spiritual mindedness. He will endeavor to set his affections entirely on things above and to hold things on earth with a very loose hand. He will not neglect the business of the life that now is, but the first place in his mind and thoughts will be given to the life to come. He will aim to live like one whose treasure is in heaven and to pass through this world like a stranger and a pilgrim traveling home. That's how we, we live like a pilgrim and a stranger, just traveling home, not neglecting this present life. What, somebody asked Martin Luther, if you knew Christ was coming, what would you do? And he said something like, go out and plant a tree and go to work. I'm going to live my life, continue to do what I do every day because I do everything for the glory of God. Peter's calling us to live a Christian life. That has been a, uh, a repeated theme of my counsel to people lately. When somebody comes to me and says, well, how do I handle this? Or how do I handle such and such? Or what do I do in this situation? And, and I'm not, I'm not, this is not a throwaway comment. And it's not something that I'm just trying to pass it off at someone else. I will say like this. Live like you're a Christian if you are. That's how you handle it. Live like a Christian would live. And that, my friends, will be the greatest impact that we have on this world. Think what Jesus said. They will know that you are my disciples by your what? By your love for one another. We get all caught up in trying to, um, you know, an evangelism class or this train. Nothing wrong with those kind of things. But listen, we miss the basic. Just live like you are a Christian if you are one. 
And he shows you what it looks like right here. And in the coming weeks, we'll come back and kind of survey this a little bit more. I had thought that maybe next week we'll, we'll do a, a little talk on spiritual gifts, but I, we might come back and just talk a little bit about forgiving love. We'll see what that looks like in the coming weeks. We'll be here in this text for a couple of weeks. And so if you don't feel like you got all that you, you, you feel like you were shortchanged this morning, come back next week. I'll give you a rain check and we'll talk a little bit more next week. God is calling you and God is calling me to live like we are Christians. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do come to you today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for uh, this word today. Thank you for this passage. And I, I hope that it did not come out as a mumbled mess but, but take the truth of this passage and write it on our hearts, I pray. Impress it on our minds. Apply it to our lives. I thank you for these dear brothers and sisters in Christ. So many of them, oh Lord. So willing, so ready to live for you. And many of them here today are ready and willing to die for you. Which is why they're ready to live for you. I thank you for how you bless them. I pray that you'll continue to do that more. Thank you for how so many pray and, and love and serve. I ask, oh God, that you'll draw us close to you as, as you draw close to us. As the, the nearness of, of the end is, is, is upon us. Help us to live differently. In a way that will bring attention and glory to you. We pray this in Christ's name and together all God's people said, Amen.